Well, it's hard to believe it's already been a year, but we just passed the one-year mark of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. What is driving this conflict? Like one big answer we've learned are Russia war hawks. I'm wondering if you've heard that term before, a war hawk. War hawks refer to those who want war. They believe the best way to resolve conflict or gain an advantage is not through peace or diplomacy, but just through war. Doves are a symbol of peace, but hawks are predators. And Russia's military leadership, we found, is full of hawks. Part of what makes a war hawk is forgetting the cost of war. If there's someone who loves war and believes it's the first and best option, it's usually a sign they've not been through a war or seen the horrors of war. This is something that happened in U.S. history. The term war hawk actually comes from American history. In the early 1800s, it was first used to characterize several congressmen who wanted another war with Britain. There was a growing conflict over the Northern Territories. The British were interfering with trade. And these young congressmen thought, like, just the best way to handle this is just, let's just declare war. Let's just go to war with Britain all over again. It had been a full generation since the Revolutionary War, over 30 years, had passed. That's enough time to forget the horrors of war. They had these young men, and all they heard were the good stories that came out of the Revolution. They saw the glory that the medals, the parades, the political careers that developed thereafter. But they knew nothing of the carnage that the amputations, the blindness, disease, imprisonment, torture, starvation. These war hawks didn't know what they were voting for. They did not know the real cost of war. And they would soon find out as their actions led to the brutal war of 1812. This same cycle happens in almost every generation. One generation after World War I came World War II. One generation after World War II came Vietnam. One generation after Vietnam came Desert Storm. Young men sign up to join the army wanting maybe glory or valor, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but many don't stop and count the cost. They don't consider what what they're really signing up for, what's really ahead of them, and that can have tragic results. The lesson each generation must learn is to count the cost. We know that that lesson is very true when it comes to warfare, but that lesson has quite the spiritual parallel And applies just as much to discipleship, where the Christian life is often likened to a spiritual warfare. We know that following Christ comes with great reward. He promises eternal life to those who follow him. Who wouldn't want that? But following him, discipleship has a cost. And indeed, the Christian life is likened to warfare many times in Scripture. For example, uh, example, 2 Timothy 2.3 It says, suffer hardship with me, Paul says to Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Though glory awaits, the Christian life can be very hard. What kind of a cost are we talking about? I mean, I thought salvation was free. Salvation is free. We are saved by grace, but it's not a cheap grace. When you come to Jesus, you enter his narrow way, you find a road marked with suffering. We just look to the one leading the way, Christ himself. What was his path like? Is there a crown? There's a crown of exaltation. Yes, there is. But first comes a cross. And overall, he promises the same to all who follow him. In the school of Jesus, like lesson one on day one of class is this, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, sometimes in history, this cost is painfully obvious. In times of great persecution, where the wicked prosper, life can be very hard for the Christian. You know, following Christ might mean loss of property, bloodshed, even death. And just how willing would you be to sign up to follow Jesus if the last person who did that, that you saw, was just thrown to the lions in an arena, or cooked to death in a metal trap, or tied to a stake and lit on fire to provide light for a garden party, all of which actually happened in the early church. All of that. When the cost of discipleship is that high, it's going to have the effect of weeding out the pretenders. Amazingly, though, 
Even despite that cost, thousands of people still followed Christ and believed in him because they saw in him the glory of God. They found that gaining him is worth more than life itself. The cost was sky high, but they counted it, they accepted it. But can you imagine how different things might look in times of peace and prosperity for the church? In those times, look, the real cost of discipleship is actually just as high, that the cost never changes. But outwardly or visibly, it appears much lower. Outwardly appears there is no cost to follow Jesus. There's only gain. I mean, you profess faith in Jesus. People around you are excited. Come to church, you get dunked in this tank of water. People start cheering. They're happy. They're, they're applauding. You enter this church community. Everyone's friendly. You find social advantages. Your business is improving. I'm not saying any of these things are bad things, but you can see how that might skew what outsiders think it means to follow Jesus. Now, to counter this, look, you better have biblical preaching and teaching where where new believers are still challenged with the words of Jesus himself and his demands of discipleship, that they, they know what they're really signing up for here. They need to understand that the Lord is calling them to surrender their lives to him, and they need to count the cost. But what happens when you have new professing Christians in a time of prosperity, and they never hear this message? They're never confronted with Christ's own demands of discipleship. They're led to believe that following Jesus is like a bed of roses. It leads to your best life now. Or worse yet, they, they think following Jesus is a guarantee, a promise to health and wealth and prosperity. That's just going to set their expectations as a Christian materially like way up here. They expect being a Christian is going to provide them safety and ease, comfort, material blessing. That's, that's why they're here. But then what happens when they find out that's not actually the way of the Lord? He did not actually promise those things to his followers in this life. To the contrary, he tells his disciples to expect persecution, affliction, rejection. If you're going to take his name, that's what you should expect. Ease and comfort come later in his kingdom. But right now in this life, we're called into Philippians 3.10, which calls it the fellowship of his sufferings. Did you know that's what you were getting when you said you wanted to follow him? The fellowship of his sufferings. Now, look, providentially, it may not be the case that the Lord will call you to lose property for his name's sake or to be imprisoned or killed. It may never happen to you, but it might. Do you count him that worthy? Would you follow him to that extent? Are you that committed or not? When you swore allegiance to him, when you professed faith in him, when you got baptized, did you know what you were doing? We are not trying to throw a wet blanket on anyone's flame here. We, 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 are, we are very excited when someone comes to conversion and, and faith in Christ. But the Lord Jesus himself is the one who tells us to count the, the real cost in following him. Jesus was approached many times by eager, would-be disciples. But he did not make it easy for them. He didn't roll out any red carpet. He didn't sugarcoat things. He rather confronted them with the strictest demands of discipleship, really so as to test them, to sift them. He wanted to know who was real. And as a result, sometimes people left Jesus. And Jesus did not chase them down and try and woo them back. He presented himself, his glory, and his demands. And after that, he's only looking for good soldiers. That's it. It's all he's interested in is good soldiers. He was not interested in recruits who were drafted against their will, pressed into service, coming to him for the wrong reasons. He didn't want soldiers who would flee at the first sign of hardship, because there will be hardship. He wanted good soldiers of Christ Jesus, those just committed to him as the Lord of glory. And guess what? He still does. This is why Jesus, more than anyone in the whole Bible, presents these unfiltered demands of discipleship. And you know, it's, it's very good for all of us here to be reminded of those demands of discipleship often, that we not lose sight of what 
what we're doing here, what we really signed up for. What, what do you expect in following Jesus? Do you expect a crown? Yes, you should. There is glory, but a cross comes first. And this morning, we're going to encounter and be reminded of some of those demands from our text. It's found in Matthew chapter 8. So you can take your Bibles now and open up there, Matthew chapter 8. I'm excited now to resume our trek through Matthew's gospel this morning. We finished up the Sermon on the Mount a little while ago. Now we're into Matthew chapters 8 and 9. This is where Matthew puts together a string of miracles Jesus performed. He's given us a big dose of the words of Jesus. Now he's going to give us several episodes of the works of Jesus. And really focusing on his miraculous deeds in these two chapters. Which really put on display not just his power, but also his authority. We learn that Christ possesses supreme authority for he is the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that chapters 8 through 9 exclusively focus on the works of Jesus. There are a few exceptions. And one exception is our passage, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 8. There, there are no miracles in this passage, but it still highlights the authority of Jesus. Chapter 8, if you recall, began with these three episodes of healing, a leper, a Gentile, and a woman, showing Christ's authority over sickness and also his compassion for the least of these outcasts of society. Later in chapter 8, we will see his authority extend beyond sickness. It will cover nature as he stills the storm at sea. It will cover the spiritual realm as he casts out many demons. But before that, we have verses 18 through 22. It's a little interlude where we see Christ's authority over his disciples. There are no miracles in this text per se, but because of the authority he has vested in himself, which he evidenced by all of his miracles, he demands complete and total allegiance from his followers if, if you don't recognize his divine authority and submit to his lordship, you're not his disciple. By definition, if you have not denied yourself and picked up your cross, you cannot follow him. Let's go ahead now and read how Jesus expresses the, the demands of discipleship to a couple of would-be followers. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. You can listen along as I read. Matthew 8, 18, he said, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now verse 18 picks up, or verse 16 left off, 16, 17, where after healing Peter's mother-in-law, it says that evening they brought to him all who were sick and demon-possessed. He healed them all. He cleaned out the town. This is taking place in Capernaum, which is a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Later that evening, surely being exhausted by all that activity, Jesus determines to depart. They're going to cross the sea, go to the eastern shore. And so verse 18 picks up right before that. You know, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Now Jesus, we know, is fully divine, but also fully man. And living per his human nature on earth, he got tired. He needed to rest. He needed sleep as did his disciples. And later on that boat ride, it's not going to be surprising when we learn that Jesus falls into a very deep sleep. He's exhausted. We'll learn about that part later. But for now, it's time for him to leave this crowd and to move on. Just recall that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, did not come to minister to every single individual on the planet personally, let alone even in Israel. His primary mission was to make atonement for sins by dying on the cross. It was going to be his disciples who would carry on the work by bringing the gospel 
to the ends of the earth, to every individual on the planet. What this means is Jesus oftentimes wanted to leave the crowds and just spend time with his disciples. He just wanted to be alone with the 12. And so whether it's getting some rest from the crowds or investing in the 12, we often see Jesus leaving the crowds behind. And here's one of those times, off they go. Jesus gives the order, they depart. And we know that Peter, James, and Andrew, and John were present, all of whom were in the fishing business on that lake, Galilee. So Capernaum was their home base. Undoubtedly, they commandeered one of their fishing vessels and set off for the other side of the lake. What happens on that trip, the storm that comes, what happens on the eastern shore, that's the rest of Matthew 8. We'll get to that later. But in between, now we have verses 19 through 22, and this really is the interlude where we see that a pair of men coming up to Jesus, wanting to follow him. Now I mentioned comparing with Luke's gospel, it seems that this incident, verses 19 through 22, these two men, actually occurs much later in Christ's ministry. Now Matthew, we've already learned several times. He's making no claim to give us a strictly chronological account of Christ's ministry. Overall, big picture, chronological, but he, his purpose is to present really a thematic arrangement of the episodes of Christ's ministry as he's presenting the Jewish Messiah. And that's not a problem. That's his prerogative to do. But it does beg the question, as we would wonder, Matthew composing this gospel, why did Matthew see it fitting to include this episode on discipleship right here. And his overall theme in chapters 8 and 9 is the authority of Jesus. And I just think that's the answer. That he's giving us another episode of the authority of Jesus, this time over his disciples. Before he moves on to display Christ's authority over nature, over demons, he's showing us his authority over his followers. And with that, the demands he puts on their lives. I mean, so far in Matthew's gospel, like Jesus seems pretty great. He's a a profound teacher. He's an amazing healer. Like who, who wouldn't want to follow him? But already you need to make sure you come on the right terms. Matthew's starting to reveal as Jesus did the, the real cost, the real cost of following him. And you need to count that cost. This Savior's narrow road is not always going to look like the applause and the love of the crowds. Right now, the crowds love Jesus. It's because he's healing them and feeding them. So, of course, they love him. But a day will come when a pretty similar crowd will turn on Jesus and aggressively chant, crucify him, crucify him. It's pretty easy to say you want to follow Jesus when he's enjoying celebrity status. But what about when he has criminal status? You still want to follow him. What about when they make you a criminal for following him? Do you still want to follow him? Do you know what following him entails? And so Matthew next tells us about a pair of men seeking to be Christ's close disciples. But this presents an occasion for displaying Christ's authority over his disciples that he has the right to place demands on their lives and also gives us an opportunity to consider afresh those demands. Do we understand them? Have you counted them? So let's consider this now. So what follows in verses 19 through 22, I guess you could say two incomplete pictures of discipleship. Two incomplete pictures of discipleship, which by contrast show us what it really means to follow Jesus. Two incomplete pictures of discipleship, which by contrast show us what it means to follow Jesus. First, verses 19, 20, you have one who is too quick in promising. First picture, you can say too quick in promising with this scribe. Verse 19, It says, then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. First, we see this scribe coming up to Jesus, pledging to follow him wherever he goes. This should right away stand out to you because the subject is a scribe. Scribes were a professional class in Israel. Most of them were Pharisees. 
Sometimes they're referred to lawyers because they were the experts in God's law. They're the ones in charge of interpreting and applying God's law to the people by which they wielded their authority because this was a religious culture. Now, of course, much of their interpretation and teaching was skewed by all their man-made tradition that we've seen already in Matthew. Now, Jesus is often at odds with the scribes. For one, he was not trained in any of their formal rabbinical schools, even though he was a rabbi. He was not trained. He also rejected all of their traditions, which they imposed on the scriptures. He went back to scripture alone. And then he just outright condemns their hypocrisy left and right. So it's not surprising that most of the times we encounter the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels, they vehemently oppose Jesus. When Jesus forgives sins, when he heals on the Sabbath, when he does not ceremonially wash, it is the scribes who try and call him out on it. Later in chapter 16, Jesus will reveal to his disciples that, oh, by the way, when we get to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer from the elders, priests, and scribes and be killed. So we don't normally see scribes supporting Jesus. There were a few exceptions. We learn in the Gospels that a few members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, actually secretly supported Jesus, as did the prominent Pharisee Nicodemus. But they mostly kept a lid on their support of Jesus out of fear. As for this scribe here, he calls Jesus teacher. That's the word for rabbi. This was a courteous form of address. All the other scribes who opposed Jesus would never recognize him as a teacher, nor would they make any claim to want to follow him. So we're left to believe that this scribe is one of the exceptions. He's heard Jesus teach. He's watched him perform many miracles. Jesus does not rebuke him as he does with most of the other scribes. We find no reason to doubt his sincerity. In this brief context, nothing is said to lead us to believe this, this was a ploy. No, just, we find a man so impressed by the words and the works of Jesus that he, just, he vows. He comes up to him, he vows to follow him wherever he goes. He seems to be eager and sincere. It's like if, if Jesus is Robin Hood, he wants to be little John. Like, I want to follow you wherever you go. But this is the question that does he know what he's saying? Does he know what he's committing to? When he promises and vows to follow Jesus wherever he goes, where does he think Jesus is going? Just think about what this scribe has witnessed so far. He's only really seen Jesus in his like celebrity stage. Jesus is wowing the crowd with his teaching. He's blessing the masses with his healing. He's even feeding the multitudes. And so at this point, the people love him. When people are rich or powerful or popular, other people flock to them. And like rising politicians have a swarm of staffers. Rock stars have groupies. People love riding coattails. But what happens when the celebrity's money runs out or the politician is not reelected? Most of those people get off the bandwagon just as quickly as they got on. They, they will abandon that person. They, they don't want to follow you when you're broke or unpopular or worse yet in our culture today, canceled. So look, it's, it's easy for this scribe to say right now that he will follow Jesus anywhere. Like, that sounds pretty appealing right now. It's like it's a celebrity time. But especially since he's a scribe, we wonder, will he be so keen on following Jesus when he eventually learns that his entire professional class, the scribes, totally rejects Jesus? Will he follow Jesus even if it means he's going to be put out of the synagogue and stripped of his title? Is he ready to bear all the shame and the reproach of Jesus when a similar crowd is now chanting, crucify him? That is what we're left to wonder. Jesus himself warned us that there would be, not a few, many people who would profess faith but not possess faith. They would, so to speak, happily follow Jesus in the countryside, but just as soon abandon him when he got to the dark valley. And don't forget the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 20 through 21, the seed on the rocky soil. It says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places 
This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. All this goes to say that as this scribe approaches Jesus, even if he's sincere, should Jesus just take him at his word? Should Jesus have faith in his faith? Or would it be wise and really even loving to just make sure he knows what he's signing up for? I mean, we're not trying to discourage anyone from following Jesus, obviously, but we are bound to help them count the cost to make sure they're not a mere professor of faith, but a possessor of faith. And that explains Christ's response in verse 20. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You may think, like, what kind of response is this? It's, it's kind of discouraging. It's not what you would expect. I mean, if someone comes into church today and says, like, I want to follow Jesus and join this church, we're all excited. But doesn't there need to be, like, some follow-up, some shepherding, just to make sure this person, like, actually knows the gospel, understands discipleship? Because, look, we all know talk is cheap. But I fear most churches undiscerningly accept those who, like this man, are too quick to promise. Like, you want to join the church? Okay, great. You're in. You're a member. Here's the t-shirt. You'll be a greeter next week. You play guitar? Even better. We'll have you on praise team less than a month. and get you in there ASAP. No questions asked. I mean, as long as people attend church and give a little money, it's like no questions asked. We, we don't want to rock that boat. But while Jesus does not necessarily turn this scribe away, he senses he's too quick in promising him like total allegiance. He needs to know what it means to follow him. And so Jesus, his response is to present him a little picture of that. He says, like, don't you know, like the foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man, he, him, has nowhere to lay his head. It's not a complicated response. In short, like, don't expect a life of comfort and ease in following Jesus. Here's a little contrast between Jesus as the Son of Man and the animals. The side note, there's so much behind this title, Son of Man, which we're going to save for next week to really unpack that next week's passage. But animals are nowhere near as exalted as the Son of Man. But Jesus has come in his humiliation and in that state, even the animals supersede him when it comes to rest or comfort. They've got homes. They have places of refuge and rest. Jesus does not. During his earthly ministry, he was literally homeless. During his active earthly ministry, he had literally no house, no home, no, no, no place of refuge. Yes, people showed him hospitality. From Peter's house to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he would stop in with people, but... He was a wanderer, a vagabond. Even from birth, he could find no room at the inn. He led a pretty rejected life. But don't miss the point here. This verse is not about Christians owning property or possessions. It's about the expectations of discipleship. I hope you're not under the impression that following Jesus is some guarantee to material prosperity, good, uh, good health, comfort, or ease in this life. And sadly, that's what all too many professing Christians expect. And when they don't get it, when they instead encounter some of that suffering or cancer or bankruptcy or divorce or injustice, they they question God, they might curse God, their faith struggles, their faith might shipwreck. I mean, they've been good Christians. They've been going to church for decades. Like, aren't they entitled to avoid some of these troubles in life? Doesn't God owe them at this point? And there might be some of you here this morning, like, wrestling with that very issue, where you're not getting what you want out of life. And a little voice in the back of your mind is questioning, like, why am I still a Christian? I thought this would make life, like, better. But you need to understand, you should not come to Jesus expecting anything but Jesus. You have faith in a person. You're following a person. And look, he promises many good things. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, new birth, and more. 
But all of that is wrapped up in him. What you gain by virtue of union with him. What you gain in discipleship is just Christ himself. And all blessings flow from that. But you're gaining him. This is what Paul expresses in Philippians 3.8 where he says he, he counts all things rubbish that he might gain Christ. He just wants to gain Christ. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field. He's worth losing, so to speak, everything you have in order to acquire him. This means that even if following Jesus comes with the loss of comfort in life, the loss of security, loss of money, loss of property, loss of life, well, it's still worth it because he is that worthy. You take all of the accomplishments of mankind throughout all human history. You take everything man has ever built or produced. You even take the earth and all it contains, and you put it on the scale opposite Jesus, and it wouldn't even budge. His worth is, is greater than all things in this universe put together. It's certainly greater than your individual life. So for you to choose him and to lose your life to gain him, like that's a small thing. That's a pretty good trade. And that is what he demands, Matthew 16, 25, after he says, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That verse is not about martyrdom, but it might be. It means you have to count your life as loss and gaining him. You you come to the end of self, of sovereignty, of self-will, Your purpose is now tied up in him. I wouldn't call following Jesus risky because all of his promises are are sure. There's actually no risk involved. The outcome is certain, as Paul stated in 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who uh, who have loved his appearing. There is a crown, a reward for those who follow Christ. But before that day, there's this cost. Like he says earlier, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who follow this Son of Man are not promised rest until his kingdom. Disciples, rather, are described as aliens and strangers on this earth. Uh, on this earth. Pilgrims just looking for a better country. We're really just scratching the surface of the demands of discipleship here. The way to get to Matthew 10, the whole chapter, that's what it's about. But knowing all this, would you still say to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go? We're not told how this scribe responded. Did he walk away sad like the rich young ruler? Or did he return? Did he follow? We're not told. But what matters most is how you respond. If you are still ultimately trying to preserve your life, your comfort, your will, your desires, you're not ready to follow Christ. You you won't sign up for this. When you understand the cost, you reject. because You're trying to hold on. But if you've come to taste and see that the Lord is good, you've, you've heard his words, you've marveled at his works, you see in his face the glory of God, then yes, you will accept this cost. It means the end of your life, your will. But the gain far outweighs the cost because by faith you're gaining him. I hope you all here do and have counted the cost. I hope you accept it. And then when adversity comes, you're not going to desert your post. You will stand firm because you are a good soldier of Christ Jesus, a true disciple. And that's what the Lord is looking for. Now, a a second incomplete picture here is added, further showing us, by contrast, what it really means to follow Jesus. So let's move on to number two. Here we have one who is too slow in performing. Too quick in promising. Second guy, too slow in performing. Don't get the impression that Jesus wants everyone, like, take a year contemplating your decision to follow him. Like, no, it's it's not okay to, to drag your feet or to take your time. There's balance here in this second picture. 
Like, yes, you need to count the costs, and that involves some time, some thought, some understanding. But, like, don't delay, because Jesus is Lord. He is worth the cost. You need to realize that quickly and come to him. Because today is the day of salvation. You, you might not get a tomorrow. That is the lesson behind this second picture. We find one who's too slow in performing, too slow in following through on his commitment to follow Jesus. Made an initial commitment, didn't follow through. Verse 21. It says, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You'll notice this second person who approaches Jesus is called a disciple. Verse 21, another of the disciples. Now first, that, that word another indicates the first guy, the scribe, was a disciple. He was counted a disciple. This is another disciple coming up to Jesus. This is another person probably been following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee for weeks, for months. Now this term disciple is being used in a loose sense. It does not necessarily refer to one fully committed in following Jesus. Here, that's obvious. John 6, that's obvious. Many disciples stopped following Jesus. But just remember, in his Galilean ministry, like Jesus had quite the entourage. Among, uh, he had these large crowds that were following him. Among the crowds, he had the 12, the first string. But there was a second string. There was a larger group of secondary Somewhat committed followers. They were following him around. Not always full time, but there's a second string. You might remember in Luke chapter 10, later, Jesus will send this group out to preach. The 70. He sends the 70 out to preach to represent him. And if you ever wonder, like, wait, who are these 70? That he just had 12. These 70, they're preaching, they're representing him. Well, this was the second string. I'm sure they were all very sad they didn't make the varsity team. They weren't among the 12. When Jesus went up on that mountain to pray and select the 12, like that was a big deal. He was selecting from among a group. But the point is, Jesus had more than 12 disciples with varying levels of commitment and closeness. Here's a man, it seems to be among that secondary group. He calls Jesus Lord. I bet Jesus knew his name. The fact that he's called a disciple indicates he made some initial commitment to follow Jesus. But he's not ready to follow Jesus all the way. Not yet. Interestingly here, the parallel of Luke 9 tells us that Jesus spoke to this guy first. Jesus told him something first before he responded. What did Jesus tell him? Luke 9, 59, Jesus said to him, follow me. He told him first, hey, follow me. He's not calling him to be among the 12, but he is calling him to like a full-fledged discipleship. The fact that Jesus called him first makes this man's response all the more telling because his response is not one of uh, yes, a full commitment. It's one of hesitation. His response, he says, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now you hear that, you think, hey, that, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good excuse, right? He wants to follow Jesus, but he needs to bury his father. That sounds reasonable. I mean, come on, Jesus, give the guy a break. But no, Jesus does not accept his wavering or his reasoning in his response. Verse 22. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now again, like, that seem harsh to you? Is this Jesus being inconsiderate or uncompassionate? I mean, just let the guy bury his father. He'll come right back. Can't he have a day off? But no, no, there, there is more going on here. Now, it's technically possible that this guy's father had truly just died and literally needed to be put in the ground and buried. But that's actually most unlikely. The Jews did not embalm their dead. They buried them. They usually did so the same day before sundown and then began a period of mourning thereafter. And so if this disciple's father had already died, it's hard to see how he would be walking around with Jesus that day, strolling about. He would be with his family already in the burial procedure and in the mourning period. It seems much more likely that his father is still alive. This makes much more sense when you learn that the phrase, bury my father, was used by the Jews as an idiom. It refers to a son's duty to remain home and care for his aging parents until they die. There were no nursing homes back then. 
And so when the elderly were in a state of decline, I mean, they fully relied on their children to care for them. And it's much more likely that is what this disciple is expressing. He has a previous obligation to care for his father, who might be close to the end, but once he has passed away, once he has buried his father and his duty is complete, then he'll come back and follow Jesus. This could be months, this could be years, but at some point, he'll come back. And this helps us understand that Christ's response is not insensitive. He's not against proper burials. But it also shows us, once again, the discipleship demands Jesus makes. Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. It's a strange phrase because, like, the dead can't do anything. It can only refer to the spiritually dead. In essence, then, Jesus is saying, like, let the world take care of the things of the world. Let those living for things here below concern themselves with things here below. Christ's disciples, in turn, he calls them to follow him, to be spiritually minded, to seek first, what? His kingdom and his righteousness. And the point is, service to Jesus supersedes all other obligations, all other allegiances. Like When Jesus says, follow me, every other relationship or commitment in your life instantly becomes secondary, and it's not even close. Now, obviously, we know God commands us to honor our parents, to care for our parents, but not even devotion to parents can compare to the devotion we should have for the Lord. This is what Jesus meant when he said elsewhere, Matthew 10, 37. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Sounds radical because it is. It only makes sense if he is the Lord. But no human obligation or responsibility can or should stand in the way of following Christ, uh, obeying his will. And that means when you hear the call of the Lord today via the preaching of the gospel, you should not hesitate or delay. If you come to behold Jesus as the Lord of Lords, nothing can compete with that call. No other love, no other commitment, no other responsibility, obligation, duty. Nothing should compete with that call. You should just follow him. You should just obey and accept. But many people hear that call, and like this disciple, they, they might come a little close, but they delay, they hesitate in following Jesus for real all the way. Why is that? I'll tell you the real reason. It's just that they're not ready to pay the cost. Again, what cost? I thought, I thought eternal life is free. It's called a free gift. And it is. Salvation is, by God's grace, it's a free gift given to us through Christ's work. But you have to realize that to cling to Jesus, we're saved by faith in him, to, to cling to him necessitates that you let go of other things first. You have to forsake certain things to free up your hands to cling to Jesus. And chiefly, you must forsake sin, self, and the world. You have to forsake sin, self, and the world. And certainly you have to forsake sin, repenting of and turning away from all wicked ways opposed to him. You also have to forsake self. He's Lord. You're not. It means you're not on the throne anymore. He is. It's not about your will for your life. It doesn't even matter anymore. It's about his will. You are to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then you have to forsake a a love for the world and all the things that are in it. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And some people, maybe even many, hear the gospel. They hear what Jesus offers. They they want that. I mean, it sounds nice, but they're just not ready to pay the cost. Can we hear again how Jesus himself puts it? Just, Just listen. Mark 8, 34 through 37. It says, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, the call of Christ is so strikingly different than the call of many churches or preachers in America today. Jesus never begs for followers. 
He commands repentance. He demands discipleship. That's because he is worthy. But it's not a harsh or cruel demand. Everything he demands, it's for your own good. I mean, if you were a prisoner of war and someone came in to rescue you and they said, hey, I'm here to save you, follow me, you would not say, like, you're being a little too harsh. (laughs) Your command is burdensome. Like, they're trying to save you. Jesus is calling us to life. And as often as the gospel is preached, this general call goes out. Jesus, humanly speaking, does not turn people away per se, but he certainly lets people walk away like the rich young ruler. He's not chasing after him. That's because he's only interested in good soldiers, true disciples, those who know him, they've counted the cost, they've accepted, they've committed to lay down their lives in allegiance to him. I don't know about you, but it, it sure seems like the days of persecution may be on the horizon for Christians again. I mean, we're already seeing crazy episodes of Christians being arrested for the crime of praying in silence on the sidewalk outside an abortion center. It's an arrestable offense now in many places. Like the visibly high cost of following Jesus may return in our lifetime. It's not necessarily a bad thing. That will sift and test and purify the church. But at the same time, look, that day may never come for you. In your lifetime, you may continue to enjoy the relative peace and comfort we have as American Christians. But either way, do you understand the call and the cost of discipleship? Do you recognize what what may be demanded of you? Do you accept or reject? The discipleship demands of Jesus can sound audacious. Like, where does this guy get off demanding, like, total allegiance from all of his followers? If he were just a man, he would not be worthy of what he demands. Like total submission, reverence, worship. But we know he's not just a man. He's the God-man, son of God, son of man. As such, all of his demands, they're actually appropriate. They, they are right. His demands are right. All this talk of authority and submission and lordship, make it the impression like this Jesus sounds like an egomaniacal tyrant who just has no regard for his subjects, all about himself. And he is the Lord of glory, but... But listen, why did this Jesus come? If he merely wanted to assert his dominance over this world, like he could have easily done that by the sword. He could have called down 12 legions of angels at any point to assert his will as God and judge. If all Jesus was trying to do was populate hell, it would have been very easy to bear the sword and bring wrath on the unrighteous. That's not a problem. But if he's going to try and populate heaven and secure a people for himself, Eternally, the sword won't do. There's only one way. It's sacrifice. In reality, all of us are unrighteous, that we're all born in sin and continue in rebellion against this God. But like Romans 5.8 says, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This Jesus came down as God incarnate to, to show us his immense love for us, by dying in our place. And there's only one way to redeem man. It was the way of the cross. He said he has to go to Jerusalem. He must be rejected. He has to be killed and rise up on the third day. This is the only way, the way of the cross, the only way Jesus could pay our penalty, bear our wrath, suffer our shame, cancel our sins. That's precisely what he did on that cross. And then he rose victoriously on the third day. And so you have to understand that when Jesus calls us and commands us to follow him, like this is what's behind it. His death for us is what's behind that call. He's come to set us free, to rescue us, to save us from the wrath to come. If only more people had eyes to see this, they they would be running to Jesus to follow him, to obey that call. Recognizing like everything he demands of me, it's, it's actually for my good. There's nothing unreasonable about it. Of course you have to deny self. Your self is in the way. Of course you've got to pick up your cross. You're going to be rejected by this world as much as they rejected him. But no big deal. I mean, despite the cost, all who come to him find new and everlasting life. And that should be a no-brainer. 
So what are you waiting for? That yes, the free gift of salvation costs you your very life, but you gain Christ. He's worth more than your life. And I urge you to count and accept that cost today and to not wait for tomorrow. And don't dare say, like, I'll give my life to the Lord on my deathbed or after I live it up. How do you know you'll find an opportunity to believe tomorrow? If you turn away now, you just might become so hardened in sin, you find no more room for repentance tomorrow. Today really is the day of salvation. You need to follow him now. We likewise don't know what happened to this second man. We're not told. I think we're not told because the focus is meant to shift to us. Now, what will we do? How will we respond to this Lord, his demands of discipleship, his call unto us? You've heard the demands of discipleship this morning. Christ has called. Will you follow? I pray you follow him and live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we want to heed the call of Christ this morning. It is only your mercy that we're here. We have your word, and we hear this gospel, the good news of, of your son and what he came to do for us. The bad news that scripture is equally clear in, in that we are lost sinners. We are chained, enslaved in a, in a burning house. We are in trouble. A predicament brought on by our own sin, our own rebellion against you. We have all, like sheep, turned away. Each of us has gone his own way. But we thank you that you sent Christ to bear our sins, that the iniquity of us all would fall on him, that he came to live a perfect life, a life of rejection as this suffering servant and being rejected even in the end by heaven itself in a manner of speaking. He died on that cross to bear our sin, our shame, our guilt, our debt, all that we might be free and free indeed, have true freedom and true life. He came to rescue us. How could we not want to follow him? But you must open eyes. We pray that by your spirit, you open blind eyes to see, to behold in the face of Christ, the glory of God, that they would see so clearly who he is, what he has done, what he offers as demands are not burdensome. His yoke is not burdensome. It's light. It's easy that all who are weary and heavy laden need only to come to him. They will find rest for their souls. Thank you for this gift, the indeed free gift of salvation. And that by your grace, may we receive it and then be renewed for all here who believe in this Christ, renewed in our discipleship, in our pursuit of him and following him with all of our lives. Renew us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.